I have never been to Europe, but everyone I know, at least every believer that I know who has been, tells me that it's a very sad sight to walk around where some of these enormous, amazing, beautiful cathedrals are, and yet they are empty. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. So few gather together that that Christianity, even in a place that is filled with these enormous edifices and these these reminders of a great Christian past, are, are not being used for the worship of Jesus. But what's interesting to me is to think back to how many of those cathedrals and churches were actually built in the Middle Ages before the Reformation. And in many ways, even if they were filled and packed with people at that time, it was a religion of of mere formalism that was being celebrated and observed there. That ignorance and superstition abounded, and people, even as they gathered week after week, sadly, many of them did not know the Scriptures at all and did not know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so when we think about the, the, the... arc of Christianity, it often tends back toward that same place, that Pharisaic place where on the outside everything looks good, on the inside it does not. When we read the book of Amos, there is this kind of haunting and sad promise that there will be a a famine in the land, but not a famine of eating and drinking, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And I think today in America, as well as in Europe, we are seeing such a famine yet again. And then here we have an embarrassment of riches as far as availability of God's Word. You can have it in any translation, in any language, at your fingertips, anytime. And yet we find people, even in churches, who don't know Jesus. Well, we see a similar situation as Paul gathers together in a synagogue of people who know God's Word very well, and he wants them to know Jesus as well. He wants to bring them from simply knowing about this God to knowing Him through His Son. That is what motivated he and Barnabas and John Mark at first to leave where they were to begin this great missionary journey, and that is what brings them to this place called Pisidian Antioch. Now, we're going to look more closely at Paul's travels and at this city next time, but I only want to say one thing about it this time, and that's it might sound kind of familiar. Didn't they leave from Antioch when they started? Yes, they left from one Antioch. They're at a different Antioch now, miles and miles and miles away. It's just like the other Antioch, only more Pisidian, if you know what I mean. I don't know what it means. So here's the point. They have traveled a ways. They have seen some stuff. They have been together as missionaries, and it may have been a little more involved than you would think as you read these few verses about their travels in chapter 13. As they arrive in the city of Antioch, they already have this, this kind of custom of going first to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there starting up discourse. There they will bring the gospel. They would go because it was a very open place. There were open doors. They were Jews and they knew they could walk into any synagogue anywhere and know what was going on and be welcomed. They could speak the language. They knew, of course, that scattered throughout the Roman world, there were many, many synagogues, all of which were essentially franchises of the same thing. It's like if you walk into a McDonald's anywhere, you can get off the same menu for the most part. What's the weirdest thing at McDonald's in Russia, Dave? I don't know. Uh, vodka. 
Well, when you, it's like with many traditions even today. If you go into an Anglican church here or an Orthodox church, you can find where you are. Even probably if we went to another country and went to a Baptist church, even though a lot of people like to say we don't have a liturgy, you'd say, oh, I get it. What's going on? We've got a hymnal. We're doing the reading. Well, this was a familiar thing, and there was a space in it that was wide open for Paul and Barnabas to step up into it and share the good news about Jesus. It was also ideal because there were gathered in this synagogue both Jews and God-fearers, which are Gentiles who are interested in and studying the one true God, the God of Israel. And remember that Paul has been commissioned by Jesus to be apostle to Jews and to Gentiles. And so starting here makes perfect sense. And when he starts here, he's dealing with an audience that has already got the background. They've already been studying what we would call the Old Testament, what they just called the Scriptures, because the New Testament, most of it hadn't been even thought of yet. And so they've got this group of people who have kind of this base knowledge, a foundation to build upon, but they don't know Jesus. They know what God's been doing in the history of his people. They know the laws and the precepts. They know about the prophets and the judges and the priests and all of it. And some people, I think, would, would say, mm, I don't know if I want to bring the gospel to them if they know all that. It's a little overwhelming. I've known people who say, well, my neighbor's not a Christian, but I tried to talk to her about Jesus one time, and I found out she used to go to Sunday school, and she knows anything I wanted to tell her. She already knew. So I guess all I can do is pray. I can't really evangelize if she already has all this knowledge. That's not how Paul and Barnabas saw this. They saw this as fertile ground. The fact that the foundation had already been laid, they could come in and bring them that last step to the cross. They didn't have to take all the time to build the, the foundation and, and all the lattice and the underpinnings and stuff. It reminds me a bit of in a classical school how they will teach children, very little children, songs that seem like nonsense songs to them. Like we teach our children, you know, hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle and all this stuff, and they learn it. And later on, they find out all those songs they learned were all this Latin stuff about how you conjugate verbs and, and case endings. And, and, and they go, oh, oh, man, I've been learning all. I didn't even know what I was learning. By the way, hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle doesn't mean anything. What a wasted opportunity. But they'd been learning all about this. They'd been learning about Jesus. They just didn't know it. And so Paul wants to come in the, to the midst of this and say, let me tie it all together for you. You may have that opportunity as well. Someone who has been to church an awful lot, and yet they don't know Jesus. You can say, listen, I know you know all these stories. Let me tie them together for you. Let me help you take that last step to the foot of the cross and receive salvation by grace through faith. And when we see the way Paul operates with people like this who have all the background, it's very different from how he operates in a pagan setting where he, he has people who, they might know all sorts of stuff about the, the spiritual fads of the day and heathen religion and philosophy, but they don't know anything about this God. He doesn't approach it the same way. Paul has a very, very fluid way of doing ministry. He will meet people where they are. Or as people say today, because we have literally lost the English language, he will meet them where they're at. Whatever way you say it, he will come to them and find where they are and say, listen, I can bring you to Jesus. I can assess where you're standing. What stands in the way between you and accepting him? And I can take you by the hand and lead you there. 
And you know, we have both of these groups today as well, by the way. These, these people who know all sorts of stuff about the Bible, and we might say, it's hard to talk to them. And then people who are so completely clueless about the Bible, they don't even know the, the basic stuff. David and Goliath, who? And they seem hard to reach as well. There, there's the, the two biggest groups, or at least the fastest growing right now, are what they, the sociologists and people who do all these surveys and demographic studies, they call them the nuns and the duns. The nuns are the people, not N-U-N-S, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are the ones who when they get a survey, they they look at it and they go, oh, census has come, Uh, what is my religious affiliation? And they check none. No formal religious affiliation whatsoever. I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Protestant, I'm not anything. I might be spiritual, but I'm not any of that stuff. I want nothing to do with it. Those are the nuns. Fastest growing group, demographically speaking. And then there's the duns, also growing quite quickly. Those who were raised in the church, and now they're like, I'm done. I, I don't think it does anything for me. I think it's full of hypocrites. I, I don't see any reason to keep on going back, and so forget it. And I think that the church has become so overwhelmed with the size of those groups and how quickly they're growing that we just kind of go like this. Well, let's, let's find people who really want to hear the gospel, and they'll, they'll seek us out. Those people are out there. Well, we saw one in the last chapter, right? Actually, earlier in this chapter. The proconsul, come and tell me about the gospel. But we're called to go and make disciples of all peoples, all nations, including the nuns and the duns, those people who know nothing at all of Christ. They might be able to tell you all sorts of stuff about Eastern spirituality or, or whatever Gwyneth Paltrow's believing or selling this week in her blog, or, but they couldn't tell you who Jesus is. I remember it was 20 years ago, my, my buddy Mike Gone and I went out and we were doing a man-on-the-street thing about who Jesus is. And then we would, we, it was not really for anything, we were just so we would have an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. But we were asking them, what did Jesus do? And the, the answers we got from young kids all the way up through adults in Grand Rapids, where everybody is a Christian, it was just so disheartening. But then we would say, oh, if you're way wrong about that, do you want to know? Well, I guess. Then we had an open forum to tell them about who Jesus is and what he truly did. But Paul looks at this particular group and the background they have and the training they have and the familiarity with the scriptures they have, not as some challenge, but as a strength, fertile ground for him to now sow the seeds of the gospel. The synagogue service it would be very familiar to us as well, even though we're not Jews, because the church service is basically modeled after it, as is church polity. It began with them reciting their creed, the Shema. Once a month, we begin by reciting a creed of the Christian church. Then they offered up some prayers, and then it was customary to have two readings from the Scripture. That might seem familiar as well, only instead of Old Testament and New Testament or epistle and gospel, it would be the law and the prophets, one reading from each. Somebody would stand up to kind of preach about it. And there was, in, in the synagogues, uh, Jesus took advantage of this as well, a custom where if there was a traveling rabbi or someone of note in the congregation that day, you would open the floor to them and say, do you have a word of exhortation, something to come up and say to us, to encourage us or to, to challenge us? This is how Jesus wound up standing in front of a synagogue full of people after the reading of the prophet Isaiah The Spirit of God is upon me, and I'm giving sight to the blind and all these things. And he said, this day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
It's also how Paul and Barnabas find themselves getting a message delivered from the ruler in the synagogue. They, they would take one of the elders and task him with overseeing the worship and officiating the service. Again, sounds rather familiar. And said, hey, do you guys, we've heard of you. Saul of Tarsus, do you have anything to say? If they were in Jerusalem, they wouldn't have gotten this because in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership had clamped down on Christianity. But we're way out in Pisidian Antioch now. And so word has not quite traveled that these guys are persona non grata. And they're able to stand up and deliver a message. And the sermon that he gives reminds us very much of Stephen's sermon before the council, before the council stoned him to death, in that it walks through the Old Testament history and then seamlessly right into Jesus and what he did for us and a call to repentance. And as he walks them to the Old Testament period, he, he talks about the calling of Abraham and the period of the patriarchs, the slavery in Egypt and the exodus, the wandering in the desert and the conquest, the age of the judges and the rise of the monarchy right up to David, the great king. But notice throughout all of this, even though he's talking about all sorts of different people in all sorts of different places within Israel's history, God is the agent of almost every single clause and phrase within every single sentence. God is the one doing as he gives this flyover of biblical history. God chose our fathers, he said. God made the first move. God saved them from slavery in Egypt. God put them uh, in, into a, a wilderness hike that lasted 40 years, and God put up with them while they were in the wilderness. God gave them a promised land and a great inheritance. God raised up a great king for them. But then Paul does something very important. He moves from talking about the ancient past and what God did back then seamlessly into talking about what God is doing at present. He is suggesting that God is still at work in their midst. And remember, this is after 400 years of prophetic silence. And so this is exciting. If you're sitting in that synagogue and someone says, all the stuff we come together and talk about and read about in these dusty scrolls every week, it's still happening. God is still at work. In fact, everything has now come to a head. The climax of all of that Old Testament history has happened, and it happened just in the past 40 years. It's exciting, and people want to hear more. God was not just sovereign then in hardening Pharaoh's heart and in parting the Red Sea. He's still sovereign. He's sovereign to the point of raising Christ from the dead. And in verse 32, he says that he is going to deliver to them the good news of what God promised to the fathers. The verb there is, I am going to evangelize you the promises that God made to the fathers. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring the gospel that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these men of ancient times. That gospel, that thing that was promised, that was coming, I have it. And I'm about to make it known to you. You know, we could look at even the past history here of what God had done and see how God still is doing these things for us today. God chose us. 
He made the first move. You can love me because I loved you first. God saved us from slavery, not in Egypt, but slavery to sin and self. God puts up with us in the wilderness as we are wandering around going, where do you want me to go, God? And he's going, this way, this way. God gives us a great inheritance and a spiritual promised land and certainly a great king. And so as he transitions into the New Testament, he speaks about John the Baptist and about Jesus and about the unjust trial and how he was made to be crucified even though no one could find any real just reason to do it and how he didn't stay dead, but God raised him again to life. And then he transitions into this kind of bringing the two together, the Old Testament and what Jesus had done. And he he makes clear what all of the New Testament makes clear, that promises that were made to David are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Many promises that are made to Israel are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It's nothing new. There are promises made to Judah that are fulfilled first in David. Genesis 49, as he is blessing his sons. Israel puts his hands on Judah's head and says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be obedience of the peoples. There was a a lesser fulfillment of this in David, this great king who would come, but he could not be the one that they were looking to. And we find out why in a moment. He says, for David, verse 36 and 37, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, meaning his body did not decay. They loved David. They held up David in high esteem. But if they could find him, all that would be left would be a pile of bones if that Therefore, it could not be that their hope is all in him, pinned to a man whose body had seen corruption. And back in Psalm 16, David himself said, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And from early on in rabbinic history, there had been this expectation that that was a messianic prophecy. That would ultimately be fulfilled in the one who came to save Israel. Later, when Paul writes to the Romans, In Romans 6, 9, he will say, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so David, we're told by Paul here, served the purpose of God for his generation. Now, first of all, that would be a great honor. To serve the purpose of God for my generation. I would love to hear that from God, or in God-inspired words like this. That would be a nice thing to write on his tombstone. Here lies David, son of Jesse, served the purpose of God for his generation. But Jesus served the purpose of God for every generation. And you could write that on a stone, but his tomb is empty, so it wouldn't make much sense. Only Jesus could truly fulfill these Old Testament promises that Paul highlights here. And then we come to the heart of the passage, verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Did you follow that? Shake the cobwebs out of your head. I'm going to read it again. It takes some concentration. This is Paul, you guys. He likes 20-mile-long sentences. It's just how he rolls. 
he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there's a, a big pile of things over here that the law of Moses is powerless to free you from. And by believing in Jesus, you will be freed from that pile of things. From that sin that stands there and festers in the presence of God. And you say to yourself, how can I stand? Woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin? And here is the answer. Jesus will. And we find then that the law, even though that's what they were gathered there to talk about and think about and, and boast about, the law, just like David, who had served his purpose for a time, died and saw corruption, the law had passed away. And the law had made way now for the gospel. Because the law cannot create righteousness. It can only demand righteousness. And almost every human religion you can imagine is built on law. Law simply means what is required of you. What is required of you by God. You cannot be given righteousness by that. You can only be demanded righteousness. Exodus 23, 7, in the law itself, God says, I will not acquit the wicked. Our only hope is that God will acquit the wicked. Therefore, our hope is not in the law. Do-it-yourself religion cannot save you. And Paul knows all about this. The first 30 years of his life were dedicated to one thing, the law. Zeal for the law. He lived those years, those decades, building something with his own law-keeping, his own good deeds, his own religious zeal. And at the end of the day, he looked at it and he thought, man, I, I'm doing so good. This pile of jewels is this high. Maybe I can make it even bigger by going and persecuting the church and that will put me over the top and I can stand before God good enough. And then as soon as he came to Christ, he looked at it and he saw it for what it was. It wasn't jewels at all. It reminds me of this time of year when the snow is melting away and the only snow that's really left is the remnants of those enormous piles of snow in parking lots where all the other snow has been pushed and, and all, everywhere around you get these enormous things from the snow plows. And even though they're not pretty because they're in the middle of a parking lot, after the snow has fallen on them, you look at it and go, huh, when I was a kid, I probably would have wanted to get on the top and play King of the Hill with my friends. It's not ugly until it starts to melt. And you see what's underneath the grossest, muddiest, disgusting, smelly snow. And you see what's in there, shopping carts and litter and garbage and rotting junk, like half a raccoon. And you're like, oh, that is very disgusting. In the same way, Paul, he had this thing that was built up, grand and wonderful. And then when he saw through the lens of the gospel what it was, the outer whiteness of the snow melted away and inside it was full of garbage and junk, and bones, and every unclean thing. This is how he sums up his spiritual journey in Philippians 3, 6-8. As to righteousness, under the law I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I see what was under the surface of that pile of so-called righteousness that I was gaining through the law. We think of how Paul writes to the Galatians. He's not happy with those Galatians. He says, you, you wicked and foolish Galatians, how quickly did you abandon the true gospel in favor of a false gospel? Well, in Galatians 3, he writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. One more thing I'll tell you about the church in Pisidian Antioch. It's one of the churches of Galatia. They were one of the churches that received this letter. Even after Paul stood up and introduced them to the gospel in this way, it can't save you the law, the gospel can. Still, they migrated back to something that put their salvation in their hands and made it up to them. And you know, the law of Moses, if you're going to go with laws, that's the best one. It's God's law. It's the best law there could be. And yet I hear people today saying, well, I'm not religious, but I have my own code I live by. I have my own law. I just kind of threw it together myself. And I'm sure that will be good enough so that if there is a God, I can stand before him and he will accept me. The law could not save us. It was not even designed to atone for our sins. As we saw in Galatians 3, our own do-it-yourself laws, how much less can they help us? But because these are religious people in this synagogue who know God's law and his precepts, Paul emphasized that you cannot be justified. That is, you cannot stand righteous before God by keeping the law. You know, surveys tell us that 35% of Americans call themselves evangelical Christians. And yet other surveys tell us that 35% of professing evangelical Christians believe that, quote, good people go to heaven and bad people get what they deserve. We need to bring the message of the gospel to people who already have a lot of information but don't understand the heart of Christ. Don't understand the inability of the law or church attendance or anything to bring them into God's presence with a relationship of blessing. Jesus said to some people, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. Close doesn't count in kingdom of heaven. Horseshoes, hand grenades, that's, that's, that's it. There's, there's, no, there's no close enough. Enter the kingdom. It's near at hand. And for those who are close, we need to bring them in. We need to remind them that there is more to this than knowing about something. We have to know Jesus. Keeping rules saves no one. And this is not just information that he's giving them. He calls them to a response in verse 38. He calls them to repent and believe because that is the only way that anyone can truly be saved by the message of the gospel that was promised to the patriarchs. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is now proclaimed to you. 
Justification cannot come from the law. In some passages here, or some translations rather say in this passage, you cannot be freed by the law of Moses rather than justified. That's a fine translation as well because this word means acquitted or absolved or made right, released from the dungeon where you've been kept so that you can go and, and feel the sun on your face. The law can't do that. Only the gospel can. But he tells us here the good news. Everyone who believes on Jesus is free. It's so very ironic to me that we use the word justify when we're describing what we do for ourselves. If I'm caught in something uh, illicit or people point out that was selfish or that was rude, we have a tendency, or at least I do, to try and justify myself. And what that means is taking my behavior and trying to make it seem more acceptable, kind of toning it down. See, it's not so bad. That's what it looks like to justify ourselves. But when God justifies us, we see Christ on the cross, and in that, the guilt and shame of our sin become clearer than ever before as the just wrath of God is poured out on him as our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't justify what we've done. He shows it to be wicked and shameful, but he takes the guilt and the shame unto himself and justifies us. Justification is not just the forgiveness of sins, but the gift of righteousness. And that is what the law could never give us. Then he closes his sermon as most people do, with a little quote from Habakkuk, right? You know, Habakkuk. Whose favorite book of the Bible is Habakkuk? Who can spell Habakkuk? But here he goes. He tells them in no uncertain terms that this is deadly serious in verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. We often talk about giving an invitation, especially at the end of his sermon. You know, we say, well, Paul wasn't just giving information. He wanted to give an invitation. But Paul's invitation sounds an awful lot more like an ultimatum to me. He says, you need to come to Christ or you scoffers will perish because God is doing a work in our day, a work that we'll, you wouldn't believe even if someone told it to you. It is beyond our ability to grasp unless we become part of it. He ends with a warning. I try never to end a sermon or a lesson or anything on a negative note, but maybe I shouldn't worry about it. Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount with the guy who built on the sand, the wind came, knocked over his house, and how great the crash that's it. That's the, that's the end. Everyone was waiting for more. And he says, have a good day. And here we have this, this Habakkuk warning, this deep cut. This is, beware, scoffers. Be astounded. God is doing something great. And you can either be like Pharaoh and you can oppose him or you can fall down on your face and you can accept it and receive what he is doing. And you know what? Ending this way was not a huge turnoff for everyone. They didn't grumble and leave. No, they practically begged him, come back again next Sabbath and tell us more. He presents Jesus' death and resurrection for what it is, the climax of history. 
as the, the crowning achievement, literally, of everything God had been doing in human history from the very beginning. And we understand that as we read the Scriptures, that everything before the cross and the empty tomb points forward to it. And everything in the New Testament after the cross and the empty tomb points back to it. What if someone were to write up a little thing about you, a little appendix to the Bible and stick it in the back? Would it point back to the cross? Would it, would it show that every, every day you lived pointed back to what Jesus had done? If not, we need to take this call from St. Paul. And remember, the only way that we can be saved is through the gospel. Not by the law, not by our own effort, not by anything else, only through Jesus Christ. Every morning when we open our eyes, we should feel anew the freedom of being washed clean of our sins and being right with God because what a privilege it is to be able to step out of bed and know I am not a condemned man or woman, but the Son has set me free and I am free indeed. Not feeling new pressure that I've got to jump through all the hoops so that God won't be mad at me, but knowing that Christ kept the law already perfectly on my behalf and made me righteous in God's sight. Is that how you begin each day? If not, perhaps this Lent is a good time to remember every morning that God's mercies are new and that Christ's blood still applies to you and that today you can go out and you can find people who are far from Jesus. They don't know anything about Him. They don't have the first clue about God. You can find people who are close, but not quite. And you can tell them all about what Jesus has done for you. You can show them all what it is like to be washed in the blood of the Lamb and know that you stand before a holy God clean. Not just washed away of your sins, but given the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. If you have not put your faith in Him, if you've been coming to church and hearing the stuff and saying the stuff and reading the stuff, but you don't know Him, I want you to come and tell me that today because we need to do some praying together. If you don't know Jesus... Oh, you're missing out. If you only know about him and you think, oh, that's for other people, trust me, he's not. He even saved me. He can save any of you. And if you have already put your faith in him, remember, you are the scriptures that people are going to read. You, you have an opportunity, like Paul, to walk into a synagogue. You have an opportunity to talk to your, your uh, neighbor at work. You have an opportunity to talk to your neighbor at home. Whatever chance you have to bring the gospel to bear, grab it. Grab it with both hands. It may not come back again. We see here that, that Paul, he's, he's unhappy with John Mark, that he abandoned them. And he lets it kind of linger there. Later on in his life, he regrets it. He says, no, John is, is good. And I, I, he's, he's profitable to me, and, and, and I, I really value what he does. But we know that when he looks back at every opportunity he had to share the gospel, Paul isn't racked with regret. Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I stand up in the synagogue? Why didn't I just take that step? Because he had followed through with what he had promised to do, to bring repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, starting from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, we pray that we too would bring the gospel wherever we go. That, Lord, we would be able, through your leading of your spirit and through discernment and wisdom that you've granted us, to recognize where someone stands and meet them there and take them from wherever that point is to the foot of the cross 
and show them how only through Jesus is their salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Only in Jesus is their fulfillment and satisfaction. Only when we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb are we truly clean and able to stand not only before you, but look in the mirror and know that we are what we ought to be. Lord, we have a great gift, a treasure in jars of clay. We pray we would not hoard it for ourselves, but that we would bring it out and people would see in our faces and in our lives that it is real. That you have taken us and raised us from death to life and given us a new heart. And Lord, we pray that people would see in us something that they want and that we could show them Jesus Christ. Amen.